0: Hey everybody, we had such a fun and interesting conversation with Naomi Klein about her new book, On Fire, which makes the case for the Green New Deal, that we decided to share with you the entire unedited conversation. There were so many cool and interesting bits that just didn't make it into the original show. So here it is. Enjoy. Hi, Naomi. It's Nick Hanauer.
1: Hi, Nick. How are you?
0: I'm good. How are you? Good. And I'm joined by my colleague, uh, Jessen Farrell. Thanks great. so
2: much for joining us today. Yeah. It's great so to have you.
0: We're super excited to talk to you about your new book. But before we do that, if you don't mind, uh, we need a slate. So please identify yourself and uh, your book and plug anything else.
1: I'm Naomi Klein. My new book is On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal.
0: We're thrilled to get to talk to you about it. Our podcast is devoted to mostly economics, but uh, the I suppose that one of the major themes of um, the podcast is that, in particular, Americans' brains were trained to believe that economics uh, was a science in the way that physics is, and that it is simply a description of the world. when, in fact, mostly, It's stories and narratives and the degree to which we accept those narratives defines the structure uh, and shape of our societies and our lives and the importance of that uh, dynamic is, you know, you see that in high relief when it comes to doing things like addressing climate change and your book. Uh, is pointed directly at that, at at the necessity of changing the narrative, the necessity of building movements around that. And um, and so we'd love for you to just sort of share with our listeners the basic argument in your book and what you think you need to do. What well, we need to do. Sure. <laughs> Rather. <laughs>
1: um, well, I think I'll start with what I think we need to do. I think the main thing we need to do is um, listen to what climate scientists are desperately trying to get us to hear. A good place to start would be um, with the summary of the report that came out last year from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change almost exactly a year ago. They put out a report about the need to keep the warming of our planet below 1.5 degrees Celsius, additional warming above pre-industrial levels. We've warmed the planet by one degree Celsius so far on average, and we are already seeing some really terrifying effects. Uh, The near loss of Arctic sea ice, we are seeing glaciers disappear from the Alps to Iceland to Bolivia. We are seeing massive historic forest fires from California to the Amazon to Siberia. We have lost much of the Great Barrier Reef. Um, these are major features of our planet, and we are breaking them. Right? You know, you look at Earth from space, and you see that Arctic ice, and the rainforests of the Amazon. Um, the, the the Great Barrier Reef is the largest um, structure on our planet, made up of life, made up of, of living creatures, coral, and and they ha- uh, uh, almost half of them have died. So. We need to understand how serious this is. Um, the IPCC has told us that if we want to keep warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius, we would need to cut global emissions in half in 12 years. And they said that a year ago, which means it's 11 years now. Um, they said that in order to do that, we cannot simply introduce a gentle carbon pricing scheme, in fact, when that question was put to the panel of uh, scientists when they released the report, um, they started laughing and said not not to say that it 's not important to have carbon pricing, but that to cut global emissions in half you would need and this is a quote from the summary of the report fundamental transformation of nearly every aspect of society so the main message i have is if we if we do need to change the bones of how we live um, how we move ourselves around where we get our energy from how we grow our food why wouldn't we seize that opportunity to make things fairer at the same time? Because we don't just have a climate crisis. We also have a crisis of uh, tremendous levels of uh, of economic inequality, of racial inequality, gender inequality. So if we need to make these deep changes anyway, why wouldn't we rebuild in ways that, that redress these structural failings? And that, to me, is what a Green New Deal is about.
2: So you really lay out right now how how much we're in this crisis and this moment of emergency. And, you know, I'm looking at your book and it has a red cover, you know, fire iconography. And one of the questions that's on my mind is why aren't we acting like our house is on fire? What do we need to do to get us to be responding in this more urgent way?
1: Sure um and I should say that that the 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 on fire title um is Obviously meant to conjure these planetary fires, these literal fires that I'm describing. But um, you know, I also make the case that the movements that are rising up in the face of this crisis are also on fire. The student uh, strike movement that we just saw, the climate strike movement, they managed to mobilize seven million people uh, for the first global uh, climate strike, where they invited adults to participate. This is the world. This is the largest climate action we've ever seen on the planet, and what's really striking about it is how quickly it came together. Um, They really only started talking about it during the summer, and and by September, 7 million people participated. So that's really, really striking. It means they're tapping into something in the zeitgeist. You see it in the polling, um, where finally people are understanding that the crisis isn't way off in the distance, and they're ranking concern about climate change at the very top of the list of their political concerns, which is a big, big difference. And it speaks to your question of why we haven't had the response that we've needed. Um, I think part of it has been a lack of a sense of urgency. And, and you would see it in the polls where you'd, if you asked um, Democrats in the United States uh, um, who said that they cared about climate change to rank it among other issues, they would reliably put it last, like 19th or 20th on a list of, of concerns, whereas now it's up there with health care. So that's a real shift, and I want to make it clear that the the, fire, the fires I'm talking about aren't only the scary kinds of fires, but also the sort of the uh, the fires that 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 clear away the debris and make make room for new growth, which is what I think we need in the face of this crisis, and we need it in a hurry. Um, I believe that if we want to understand why we have failed to act like our house is on fire, when the scientific community has been um, doing their very best to get our attention and explain to us that that it really is, a lot of it has to do with this epic case of historical bad timing, where the moment where this lands on our lap certainly as Americans, um, but at the global community as well. Like the first intergovernmental meeting on climate change happened in 1988 and 1988 was the year that James Hansen, um, formerly of NASA, um, testifies on Capitol Hill and says he can now say with a 99% certainty that, that humans are causing the planet to warm, uh, and, and so all of this is happening in, in 88. The, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is formed. Um, and so if we think about what is happening in the political economy in 1988, um, the Berlin Wall is about to collapse the next year. The first free trade agreement um, is signed between Canada and the U.S. that becomes the template for these Oh, pro-corporate neoliberal trade deals around the world. Um, it's the ascendant moment of this, uh, this Reagan Thatcher economic project that, that Joseph Stiglitz has called, you know, market fundamentalism. And this is really the worst time in human evolution when we could have faced a collective crisis like climate change, because it does demand that we break every single one of the precepts of that um, ideological economic project, which, you know, as you said, Nick, um, we're trained to think that it is scientific. And that's certainly what Milton Friedman and and Friedrich von Hayek wanted us to think. In fact, they were passionate about making economics no longer a part of political science, but on par with science and chemistry. So no one could argue with it. Right. Right. Um, And, 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 and it was this was their moment in the late 1980s it was certainly Friedman's moment when finally they had politicians who were really listening to them around the world um, but to deal with the climate crisis we need huge investments in the public sphere we need to regulate corporations and tell them you can't dig up all that carbon um, we need resources to pay for it which means we shouldn't be slashing taxes for corporations and, and, and wealthy individuals which is what we're doing in this period so if we really want want to understand why we fumbled this as badly as we did when we all started getting together to talk about it in the in the late 80s and early 90s. I think a lot of it has to do with this ascendant moment, the end of history moment, the there is no alternative moment. Um, and I think fortunately, we are in, in a different moment now. And I think that's partly why we are seeing the movements um, emerging the way they are, and, and including movements in the United States, like the Sunrise Movement, Demanding a Green New Deal, hearkening back to FDR's original New Deal, which um, you know were moments in American history when 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 there was far less fear about interfering in markets, about about investing in the public sphere. Um, so. Yeah, I guess that would be my best. I, I mean, I could go deeper. I could also say that it's, you know, I could also bring it back to, you know, the 1500s and the idea of treating nature like a machine and us as, our, as its masters. Uh, you know, I could talk about, you know, Christian texts. And telling us that nature is our dominion—it depends yeah. how far back you want to go. <laughs> well, we want to get to that too, I think. Yeah. You
2: know, but I think what you're um, putting this squarely in the ascendancy of ne- neoliberalism is really important, and that yeah. moment in the late '80s, and it's a great segue into the Green New Deal and. You know, my fundamental critique of the Green New Deal is it allows us to take on neoliberalism in a very explicit way, which is to say environmental regulations don't kill jobs. Instead, it is the source and possibility of broad based and shared equitable prosperity. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about why the Green New Deal gives you cause for optimism, if that's not overstating the case.
1: No, I mean, it gives me a lot of optimism because um, it is the first time I think we've talked about a policy response to the climate crisis that is on the scale of the crisis. Um, It's the first time we've put justice at the center of that response. Um, And it is, I think, the first time we have a strategy that is designed to undercut the biggest barrier that we've had, uh, which is this ability to pit jobs versus the environment, right? As you as, as, as you as you just said, because um, you know if we look at what happens when you try to have a sort of a narrow carbon-based approach, a more technocratic approach to the climate crisis, and you try to do it within a neoliberal framework, what you often get is backlash. Um, you know the most. The most glaring example of this is what has happened in France over the past year with Emmanuel Macron, um, you know, a pretty straight up neoliberal leader who comes out of the banking sector, um, you know, comes in. introduces these sort of so-called modernizing policies that uh, you know translate into economic austerity, attacks on social protections in France, attacks on trade union rights, hands out a bunch of tax breaks to millionaires and corporations. So he's following the neoliberal playbook to a T, but he also says, oh, and I want to do something about climate change, so I'm going to tax your gasoline and 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 lo and behold, people perceive this as yet one more economic stress, Um, and they perceive it as tremendously unfair because they see um, that the people who are actually driving the climate crisis are doing pretty well and actually getting a whole bunch of of goodies from this, uh, from, from my call. And so you have the Yellow Vest Movement, the Gilets Jaunes Movement, um, and their slogan is, you care about the end of the world, we care about the end of the month. Um, and, And the whole thing falls apart. You know, we have riots in pretty much every major city in France, and Macron backs off and says, okay, we won't have the tax after all. Um, So, with the Green New Deal, what we're saying is everybody has a right to care about the end of the world and the end of the month, here's a plan about how we get emissions down to what scientists are telling us we have to do in a way that's going to create millions of unionized jobs um, and better public services, healthcare, childcare, education. Um, So while there are areas where we are going to have to contract in the face of this crisis, he, there are also tangible ways in which people's lives are actually going to get easier. So it isn't all loss. There are tangible benefits to this as well, and I think that's a much more sellable message if politicians are willing to be out there selling it. My my concern is that we've had a ton of misrepresentation about what the what the Green New Deal is on Fox. You know, they just basically lie about it and say it's just all about taking away your hamburgers um, and destroying your quality of life and and, and reliably, you have Democrats who get spooked enough by that that their response is just to try to change the subject instead of really strongly going out there and going, no, you know, this is a jobs program. This is how it's actually going to make your life better and easier. And, yeah, there are going to have to be some sacrifices, but we're going to make sure that the polluters are the ones that pay the bulk of this um, so that so that it is perceived as fair. And that's something FDR understood very well um, during the Second World War when they had to introduce racism. Was that it was absolutely critical uh, that corporations had to um, face big changes and sacrifices as well. The slogan was fair shares for all. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, I think Americans are willing to make sacrifices, but not if they're perceived as unfair, not when you're being told to take a 20-second shower in California and you can see that, the, you know, the, the, the golf club down the block has their sprinklers on nonstop. Like, that's a non-starter.
0: Right, and, I, you know, I think that... Um you know the 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 way in which addressing the climate crisis intersects and is mixed up in uh, addressing the inequality crisis makes it sort of doubly hard to solve, right? That you have the circumstance where a few people have won and almost everyone else has lost, and you have a giant proportion of the public who are sort of hanging on by their fingernails. And it, it, you know, that makes that creates a context in, in which change is hard and risky, and um, and where uh, the resistance is, you know, where it's easy to generate resistance to to change.
1: Sure, I mean, right now you have GM. Um, you know, you have strikes at GM because workers are facing factory closures and huge layoffs and the company's blaming electric cars for it, right? So you can understand why workers feel that they have to choose between jobs in a healthy environment. Um, We haven't had policies, robust policies um, that don't force people to make those choices. But it, in order to do that, you actually would have to regulate corporations.
0: Yeah, and the other the other thing that I think comes through really clearly in your book is that um, that, it, 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 that this is not a contest over facts, really. It's a contest over power. And you know, certainly in the world of political economy, one of the reasons that uh, you know progressives got rolled for so many decades was that they thought they were having a contest over facts when in fact the other side was having a contest over power and once you once you understand the problem in that way it you know it clarifies the need for different kinds of approaches i mean i, I just want to analogize to the, to this ridiculous claim that raising wages kills jobs in fact it doesn't but the, they don't say it because it's true they say it because it's effective <laughs> right? It's a super effective way to keep wages low and profits high. And and really, until our side recognized that that was the game that was being played, it was very hard to win.
1: And, you know, I sort of realized this wasn't about the facts. It wasn't about the science. The first time I went to a Heartland conference, which is, you know, ground zero for climate change denial. And I write it up in the book, right, where, you um, you know, I think when I first started hearing about, about, about climate change denial, I bought this idea that it was coming from the scientific community, that there were, you know, that there was a significant portion of, uh, of the scientific community, small, marginal, um, who really disagreed with, 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 the, with, with the, the otherwise scientific, you know, consensus around this. But you go to these Heartland conferences and, you know, the Heartland Institute is, is a, a free market think tank. It has nothing to do with climate science, right? And they have bankrolled this whole thing. Um, they, you know, bring in a few... Um, Okay, I have to be careful about what I say about these climate scientists, but, you know, they're just steeped in fossil fuel money. They're completely, uh, you know, they all have contradictory ideas. Some, somebody's talking about some sunspots. Someone's talking about the little <laughs> ice age. Somebody's talking about, you know, I mean, it's just completely incoherent, and nobody even tries to resolve it. Somebody says it's happening, but it's not that bad, right? The point is just to throw a bunch of mud at it, right? But I interviewed Joseph Bast, who's head of the um, the Heartland Institute. You know, a Chicago Chicago school economist, um, and he said to me straight up, he said, "I realized that if the science was true, it would justify any kind of regulation, and heaven it would forbid." Be- <laughs> <No>. <laughs> and he said, "So I took another look at the science. <laughs> you know, um, he's very. He was very honest with me about about the fact that he w- his problem with the science was its political implications. Um, that it was completely incompatible with the entire project of the Heartland Institute, which was to fight for deregulation, low taxes, slashing the public sphere. Right, um, and so you have these heavily motivated, ideologically motivated parties like." you know, Heritage, you know, um, the Center for, what, what the CEI, American Enterprise Institute, um, Heartland, the Ayn Rand Institute. I mean, this is who is at the climate change <laughs> denial conferences. And it makes it pretty clear that it is not about the science. It's about protecting this particular very profitable worldview, right? Um, and, you know, I think in part there's been a failure on the, on the part of, of liberals who saw this and thought that the right way to respond to it was to say, oh, no, 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 we can do this just by changing our light bulbs and, you know, having a revenue neutral carbon tax, you know, that is just going to give everybody their money back and trying to sort of cram this into its own neoliberal um, You know, framework that where it wouldn't be too threatening to the market, but it was actually, in a weird way, I think the right that understood better that actually that that stuff was never going to work, and that they really had to to deny it all because ultimately it's too threatening. Um, And you know, the real problem I, what I'm really frightened about, and what I write about in the book is that. I actually think we're going to look back on the age of the climate change denier with some nostalgia because it's becoming really, really hard to deny deny the reality of climate change with a straight face. And more and more, we're seeing people on the far right identify themselves as eco-fascists who say, "Okay, the science is real. And that's all the more reason why we need to protect White Christians in our countries and fortress our borders and keep out Mexicans and you know this is becoming explicit in the United States and Europe. We're now seeing you know far right parties like Marine Le Pen's talking about climate change as part of the reason why they are advancing their racist xenophobic um, agenda. So you know. I think we have to be be, be careful what you wish for in terms of trying to convince them it's real.
2: Yeah, and and that is really insidious and scary, and yet, You write about, and you mentioned earlier in the interview, the fact that these social movements are really on fire in this moment. And it would be really great to hear you reflect on how we can use activism and movement building in this particular moment to change narrative, to push things like the Green New Deal. What is it that we need to be doing right now to fight against all of this?
1: So I think that the the biggest challenge we have or one of the biggest challenges we have is that the most successful part of the neoliberal project, um, in the eighties and nineties was, you know, less the idea that these policies were actually going to create sort of the best possible outcomes. Um, those ideas, have lost a lot of power, right? There's very few people who will say to you with a straight face, yes, if we make, you know, the wealthy richer, it will eventually trickle down and <laughs> lift all boats, you know, the era of sort of the true neoliberal believers has really passed. But I think what has not passed, what still lives with us is the idea that there is no alternative to it. Um, that, you know, that the that's right. There is no alternative um, you know, the Fukuyama there, you know, this is the end of history. The idea that we as humans are only capable of um, pursuing our most, you know, short term uh, um, selfish uh, um, urges. These messages are really, really deeply ingrained and they do come from economics um, because the truth is there's a lot of ways to be human. And there are people, uh, you know, Yeah, I mean,
0: I I just want to point out that that idea, the homo economicus, that people are rational and selfish, um, and by so describing our nature gives, has given a generation of people permission to be our most selfish, you know, all of that over the last 40 years has been shown to be nonsense. It's just, it's just objectively false. I mean, people can be right, selfish. Pe- and people are. People
1: are lots of things. <laughs> yeah, right? that's right.
0: But in general, people are cooperative and altruistic, and so on and so forth. And that's that's the part of us that we need to um, that 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 we need a culture that promotes that. Not
1: right. Know, exactly. We need systems that light that up. And you know, and if I can just go on a a, a little bit of a diversion here, you know. I was recently in Chico, California, um, which is just down the road from Paradise, California, where you had um, a devastating wildfire a year ago. Eighty-five people were killed, and now 86 because another person died in hospital very recently. Um, 14,000 homes were, were destroyed. And the population of Chico exploded because they had climate migrants by the thousands in their communities. And people responded with so much generosity, Um, you know, the, 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 the parking lot of Walmart was filled be, with people bringing food and clothing and organizing databases to make sure that people who had spare bedrooms opened them up to families who needed a place to live. And it was just sort of like it, it, it just flew in the face of this idea that all we care about are ourselves and all we are is selfish. But, you know what, visiting this community a year later, and by the way, they're fighting for a Green New Deal in Chico, it was really heartbreaking because I heard a lot of stories about how despite this urge to, um, to, to meet this crisis with open arms and to treat strangers um, as, as if they were friends and, and, and to, to really be our best selves in the midst of this crisis, all of these market forces were bearing down on them. That were pitting people against each other. So rents were going up. Um, every, you know, utilities were going up. There were all these stories about real estate profiteering. Um, they weren't getting the mental health supports that they needed. Um, and so here you have this community that is really trying so hard uh, to to live up to the best that humans are capable of. But all of these systems are encouraging homo economicus. You know, and so it, for me it was it was just it just really made real how important it is to invest in the social infrastructure around the Green New Deal. It's why it is important that it talks about health care and child care and mental health supports and not just the kind of the hard infrastructure of renewable energy and public transit. Like we need all that too, right? But we also need to support people as we deal with these shocks. Um, So in terms of the most important thing that, that we need to do right now, I think we need to Um, Lift up narratives that show other ways of being human, um, including examples in American history that tell stories about about other times when people pulled together in the face of crisis. Um, And I think we also need stories of the future that challenge the idea that the only the, the, the way that we're going to respond to a future of ecological crisis is by just being worse versions of ourselves. I think Hollywood has fed us many, many different iterations of that same narrative and it almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. People think that they're giving us sort of a dystopian warning by showing us um, the sort of Handmaid's Tale version of us uh, or the Elysium version of us or the years. I mean, I could go on and on about all the cli out there, but um, after a certain point, if that's the only version you've seen, you start to think that's the only kind of person you can be. Um, So so I think all of that's important. Um, And I also just think organizing is important. So, um, you know, what I'm focused on is... What, what parts of the Green New Deal are really being left out? Uh, um, so I've been, I just had it, we just had it, I just hosted an event where I teach at Rutgers and we had an event about the care economy in the Green New Deal, bringing together teachers and home care workers and nurses and disability rights activists and talking about how this is low carbon work. It's overwhelmingly done by women. It doesn't burn a lot of carbon to take care of each other, to take care of the elderly, the sick, young people. Um, but it's, these are bad jobs. Because it's women's work, it's overwhelmingly work done by immigrants. So, as we talk about job creation under a Green New Deal, let's not just talk about well, they're not, making they're sure they're not
0: bad jobs, they're poorly paid jobs.
1: Well, right, I mean they, they can jobs. be how, how, how can the work is good, the work is important, but, but the, 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 conditions yeah, yeah, yeah. the conditions are punishing the conditions are it's, punishing and and these you know care workers are first responders in, in, in the midst of, of these crises when I mean, there are devastating stories about um, you know, Filipina um, uh, home care workers who burned with their clients because they wouldn't leave them and there was no plan to evacuate them in the midst of the California fires. So we need to respect this work and we need to make sure that that, that they're good jobs um, because this is the fastest growing labor sector in the American economy. And the trouble is because it's women and overwhelmingly immigrant women that are doing the work, we've allowed them to be bad jobs. Um, But so yeah, let's recognize that they're not only good jobs Um, it's the work that binds together our communities that makes us less stressed and it's low carbon and we can make it lower carbon. So as we talk about green jobs, and this is something I'm just banging on and on and on about is um, let's not, let's, Let's not make it just about the guy in the hard hat, you know, putting, putting up the, up solar, the panel. solar panel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A home healthcare good. <laughs>
0: worker is also a green job.
1: And that is exactly,
0: such, yes.
2: that's such a great uh, insight about how the care economy can really be a part of the Green New Deal. And it's kind of great to bring that high note into this conversation. And one of the, you know, just as a final question, it would be really great if you could take a moment and reflect on why you continue to do this work.
1: Oh dear! I mean, look, <laughs> <laughs> I <note>. am motivated. <laughs> high note. I mean, I don't know if I can be only high on it. Um, I, it's a mixture of of of, of terror um, at what will happen if we don't do this work. Um, I, you know, I have a seven year old. Um, he is so in love with the natural world. Um, I never want to have to tell him that we you know, allowed the places that he loves to collapse um, because we could have done something we didn't. Um, so I, you know, I'm, I, I guess it's a combination of a fear of these worst outcomes, but also I you know, I'm so inspired by this new generation of activists that are out there who are really not afraid of deep change. I think they didn't grow up with the same economic ideological indoctrination that I had, um, that my generation had. They've grown up in the rubble of the post-2008 financial crash, and they know that these systems are collapsing. They want to make connections. They are fiercely internationalist. Um, You know, Greta Thunberg, when she spoke at the U.N., she said, you stole my childhood. And it was so heartbreaking to hear her say that. And I just feel like, geez, if these kids are giving up their childhoods, I mean, the least we can do is give up evenings and weekends and try to organize our coworkers. And maybe our retirees can give up a few cruises. And, you know, like they're giving up so much. So maybe it's not a high note, but I just feel like this is a moment where everybody has to step up in such a big way. And every, every half a degree of warming that we're able to ward off is a win. And every policy that we introduce that lights up the humanitarian parts of ourselves and, 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 and keeps us from turning on each other is going to help us hold on to our humanity in the hot future that is ahead.
0: Yep. Yep, yep, yep.
2: Yeah, we really appreciate those those thoughts, and I think that that's a really good place for all of us to focus our attention on those policies and efforts that really lift ourselves up as... Uh, as humans and not divide us. So we really, really appreciate your time with us today. This yeah, has been a thank really
0: you meaningful so much. interview. We, we of course, thank have been... you.
1: I really appreciate that. I really appreciate it too. It was such a nice conversation for me. I'm sorry. I get a bit bleak sometimes. No, that's okay. <laughs> we it's got okay.
0: it. So, yeah, it's okay. All uh, right. Uh, well, thank you so much for spending time with us and uh, Thanks. we Thanks. will talk more in the future. All right. Okay. Take care. Thank good. you. Bye. Bye.